because of the holidays and the new year, it's been two weeks since we were last in the Gospel of John. And last we were together, we looked at an amazing story. As a matter of fact, the first 44, 45 verses of John 11 record the incredible story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after four days in the tomb. It is an incredible story. And in our previous time together, we were able to work our way through the text, kind of fulfilling our exposition. So we worked our way through the the nuts, the bolts, wrapping our brain around what the text is actually communicating. But we didn't have enough time to really dive into the application of the story itself. We scratched the surface, but we really didn't, just for the sake of time, didn't have enough of an opportunity to do so. So this morning, with the exposition kind of out of the way, I do want to get to the application part. But to do that, I think it would be helpful for us to at least, at a minimum, reread the story just to refamiliarize ourselves with what's happening, and then we're going to dive to the next level. So John chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, just reading the story, we're told that a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was a, a suburb of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. This was also the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Then John kind of adds for some context, we know which Mary. There's a lot of Marys. He says that it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, Jesus is presently down at the Jordan River, Bethabara, probably. He's about a day's journey from Bethany. So these sisters send a courier to Jesus with a message. Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Well, verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, so this is his reply message. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus, John tells us, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, what makes that interesting is we've just had two references to love. In the message that these, these women send to Jesus, they say, Jesus, we know if you hear, if you catch word that Lazarus, we know you're going to come because you love Lazarus. And this word, it's phileo in the Greek. It's a brotherly love. He's your bro, man. Your BFF. We know you're going to come. And yet John adds, especially before we see what happens, that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And this word love here is different. It's not phileo. Their estimation was that Jesus loved them in a brotherly way. And yet John wants us to be clear that Jesus actually loved them in an agape way a deeper way, an intimate way, a way that they didn't even know. So when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Well, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. We, we saw two occasions of this in the previous chapters. What, are you going to go there again? The scene is hot, Jesus. Why are we going to go back to Judea? But Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus basically saying, I've got a limited time to work. My time is expiring. We're going to go. 
These things Jesus said, and after he said them, he said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Verse 12, Then his disciples said, Lord, if Lazarus sleeps, he will get well. If he's sleeping, that's a good thing. Why are you going to go wake him up? However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So Jesus says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Then he says something weird. Lazarus is dead and I am glad. But then he adds, for your sake, that I was not there that you may believe. And ultimately, as we'll see, Jesus is wanting them to believe that he had power to raise the dead. A very important lesson. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. This reference to Thomas being the twin, most scholars believe that he probably looked like Jesus. Notice notice the twin is capitalized. Thomas, looking like Jesus, no doubt, would have been fearful going into a toxic environment. Who was the one guy probably most likely to get arrested on mistaken identity? It'd be the guy that looks like Jesus. So Thomas is like, okay, let's go. We'll die with him, and we should give him a little credit. Verse 17, so Jesus came, and he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. Mary was sitting in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Verse 23, so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise Again, and Martha replies, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, Mary arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with Mary in the house, who were comforting her, when they saw her rise quickly and go out, they followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She repeats the identical appeal of Martha. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He he groaned. This word groaned, in Greek literature, it it describes a, a, a bull snorting. The idea is that, th- that something moves in him and he, and he sucks in and he's troubled. He's literally, he's going to move to act. He says, where have you laid Lazarus? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then we're told that Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? They're skeptical, 
But Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. The way I've always pictured this story, the way that you probably do as well, is Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus, weeping. And you'll hear often in in funeral uh, messages, funeral uh, thoughts, that Jesus here is identifying with the pain of death, the human experience. And yet the, the problem with such an image is that it's not textual. Look again, we're told Jesus, he groaned, he was troubled, he saw Mary weeping and the others, And it was then that Jesus said, where have you taken him? And he weeps. Then he comes to the tomb. Understand, Jesus was not weeping because of the loss of Lazarus. Jesus knew how the story was going to end. He had no reason to grieve for Lazarus, like to identify with the pain. Instead, it was the reality of what death had done and how it affected humanity. It was, in a sense, the creator groaning and weeping over the destruction of what he had called perfect. Well, Jesus said, he's standing there. He says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to Jesus, Lord, by this time, uh, there is a stench. I I like the old King James translation. He stinketh. For he's been dead for four days. If you do any research at all on what's happened to the body in a Middle Eastern environment after four days of rot, oh, he stinketh. Ain't nothing left. And obviously Jesus waits four days because in Jewish tradition, it was believed that the spirit would hover around the body for at least three days. But by the fourth, because there was no way it was going to revive, the spirit would would depart into paradise. Waiting for four days was specific for what Jesus would soon do. So he he stinks, but Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, Martha, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. So he prays. I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that you sent me. And since Jesus prays out loud so that the audience could hear him praying. Now when he had said these things, Jesus cried, verse 43, with a loud voice. He cries out, Lazarus, come forth. This word, come forth, it it can be translated, Lazarus, this way. Come this way, Lazarus. And he who had died, remember, it's been four days, came out of the tomb, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. So he hobbles his way out. His face was still wrapped with a cloth, so Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. And and it's interesting that there is no attempt at all by John to describe any of the human emotions or the reactions in the moment likely because there was no human words to describe what was taking place. Now, in our previous study, our first pass through this text, I noted that this crisis in the life of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was really nothing more than an opportunity, 
an opportunity for Jesus to reveal through the crisis an important aspect of himself that they could have never known otherwise. Think about it. These three individuals, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they, they knew much about Jesus. As a matter of fact, they considered him to be a personal friend. Aside from that, within the text, there's a confession. They had already accepted him as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. They heralded Jesus as well as their Lord, as their teacher. Interesting, women referencing a rabbi as their teacher. That was a, a societal taboo. They were confident even that Jesus had supernatural power to heal. Likely their father, Simon the leper, had been healed by Jesus. Once more, as illustrated in their initial appeal, Mary and Martha were also willing to trust, right? They were, they were willing to trust that Jesus, because of his love for them, upon see, receiving word that Lazarus was sick, would act accordingly. And yet, in an act of a greater love than they even knew, Jesus does something unexpected. He doesn't come immediately and heal Lazarus. Instead, he allows his friend to die for one reason. So he could come, reveal himself, and they believe that he's much more than what they knew. But he was the resurrection and the life. You know, from the macro perspective, this story is important. For it illustrates to us the idea that grief and loss are not allowed into our lives to cripple us, but to deepen our understanding of who Jesus really is. I know it's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it is often in the point of great weakness that we come to experience a strength that we could have never known otherwise. That it's in the trial that the light reveals itself in a profound way for us to see Jesus. The second challenge, challenging aspect of this story, it is, really boils down to a fundamental question. Are you willing to trust that Jesus always has a reason for the things that he does? You know, these two women believed, they were confident even, that if they just got word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, Jesus would come immediately. He would drop what he was doing. He would come and heal their brother. On the surface, it would appear that Jesus' decision to tarry for two days, in effect allowing Lazarus to die, proved to be a difficult truth for Mary and Martha to reconcile with what they believed. They thought Jesus would come. The idea he would wait and allow Lazarus to die. Lord, if you had just been here, Lazarus would be alive. In effect, the women are asking Jesus, why didn't you come earlier when you could do something about it? There is no question the answer to their inquiry was found in what immediately transpires. I mean, when Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus came forth. In that moment, to everyone's dismay, Lazarus being resurrected from the dead, it communicated a message. You see, in light of Jesus' clear and undeniable resurrection power, the very basis of their complaint now seemed ridiculous. Lord, if you had just been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. That's kind of silly, isn't it? 
when after four days Jesus raises the guy from the dead. I didn't even need to be here. He could die and that wouldn't restrict me either. Understand, what the resurrection of Lazarus intended to communicate to Mary and Martha specifically was that Jesus' decision to tarry hadn't been an accident, but had been intentional. That there was a purpose, a reason behind his actions. Jesus wanted Lazarus to be dead. He wanted him to die. He wanted him to be so dead, he stinketh. Which is why he waits to the fourth day, so that no one could possibly question his authority and power over death. Now, for you and I, there is a, a lesson that we should learn. We should learn from their experience. When we come to Jesus sincerely, often passionately, and we make our requests known to him as he's asked us to, cast your cares to him, knowing that he cares for you. When we make our requests known to Jesus, the lesson here is that we need to trust that whatever happens next is part of his perfect will for our lives. If Jesus works immediately, then that was his plan. But if he waits and tarries, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he's not listening. What it means is that there is a greater reason than you could even imagine. Now, the third observation that I want to make from this story, and it really dovetails off the previous two, is that the knowledge that Jesus is in control, that knowledge, it intended to provide comfort to Mary and Martha. Again, if you go back to the text, in response to the message that Lazarus was sick, Jesus doesn't ignore them. He doesn't leave them without anything. He replies, doesn't he? He says, this sickness is not unto death. Don't worry about it. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He gives them a reason. And then it's not an accident that later in the story, when Jesus commands that they take away the stone, and Martha replies, Lord, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead for four days. Jesus says what? He reiterates the same original message. He says, did I not say to you, Martha, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. It would appear that this message intended to provide appropriate comfort to the grieving, that they would just believe and accept it. Friend, in the moment of crisis, when life inevitably takes that unexpected turn, the curveball you couldn't hit, and you find yourself coming in that moment before the throne of grace in desperation, Please, please, please know, and I'm preaching to myself as well, that the knowledge Jesus loves you, the knowledge that Jesus is in complete control over all, those two things are designed to provide you comfort if you'll believe them. Sure, it's only natural that you might want some more information. I trust you, Jesus, but you know, it would be nice if you could just kind of let me know how these things are going to work out. If you could just maybe a little glimpse into the purpose, it'll help me, you know, with my trust issues. And yet, instead of a when or, or what, Jesus more often just replies with a who. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Again, 
while Jesus might wait to work. And he might work in a way you don't expect or anticipate. Jesus, friend, will never, ever, ever leave you without a promise. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 28, that we know, literally we're confident, that all things, and that word all in the Greek is all, all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, again, we're told that Jesus Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Will you trust me? One of the other things that I'm struck about this passage is the way Jesus ministers to the grieving soul. Here you have these two ladies, Mary and Martha, who are both dealing with an identical pain, the loss of their brother, Lazarus. In addition, they both articulate an identical message in their grief. If you had been here, And yet, what jumps off the page to me is that while they both are experiencing identical pain and are articulating the same message, Jesus engages them both very differently, doesn't he? Did you notice that from the text? With Martha. Martha comes and he says, she says the same thing. If you had been here, and what does Jesus do? He uses theology. He engages her mind. He answers her questions. Lazarus, he will rise again. And she's like, I know, the resurrection of the last day. And then Jesus uses that to say, I am the resurrection. What you need in your moment of pain and grief and loss is some theology. Let me answer your questions. Martha, I need to hit you right here in the brain, in the mind. But with Mary, does Jesus minister to her with theology? No, not at all. Same grief, same appeal, but Jesus simply weeps. He just breaks down and cries with her. He identifies with her pain. You know, because everyone grieves differently, the truth is we must be sensitive to the reality that there is no template for how to comfort the grieving soul. A few years ago, our church experienced the unexpected death of a brother that we all love very dearly. And this reality, that there is no template to minister to a grieving soul, became very evident. Became very evident. For some in that moment, I needed to answer their very real and raw questions. And for some, my ministry was theological. And yet for others, all they needed was someone to share their pain and harmonize with their tears. They didn't need a Bible study. They just needed a hug and silent weeping. You know, Jesus knew what each of these ladies needed. A, he knew because he's Jesus, so he's got that advantage. But he knew because he knew these ladies. They were her friends. And so one of the things that jumps out to me about this story is that when you're faced with someone that's grieving, there's not a template There's not a template. One of the other aspects of the story that I find incredible is that believing was not a precondition for the miracle. 
<laughs> there was not a soul that believed Jesus was going to raise Lazarus after four days in the, in the tomb. Like Jesus repeatedly told them, right, Lazarus would be fine. But no one understood what he meant. Even when Jesus asked them to remove the stone from the face of the tomb, he's met with skepticism. No one believes that Jesus was going to rise uh, to, to call for Lazarus. You know, it's true that if the work of God in this world was dependent upon the faith of men, it's likely God would never work. I'm so thankful that God works in spite of my unbelief. That even when I, I can't believe, I'm reminded of the passage where the, 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 the grieving father, you know, Jesus is like, will you believe? I can heal your son. And, and he's like, Lord, I believe. And then what does he immediately say? But help my unbelief. I want to believe, but I don't know. Like, I'm so glad that Jesus works often in spite of us and not because of us. That Jesus didn't base his involvement in this situation on anyone's faith that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, before we place this story into its larger context and then finish out the rest of the chapter, which we'll do, it would be hard to leave such a passage without taking a moment to make an observation about the afterlife. I mean, it's not every day you encounter a story where a guy's been dead for four days and is now alive again. While Lazarus, the text says, unequivocally, was dead, physically dead. Even Jesus, when he's talking about sleeping and whatnot, and they're confused, he's like, no, 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 he's dead. Let's just get that out there. Lazarus was physically dead, and yet the passage is also clear that he was very much alive. He was dead, but he was very much living. How else would Lazarus have been able to hear and obey a command of Jesus to come forth if he wasn't alive? But he was dead. And not only that, but Lazarus, what's interesting, seems to have remained Lazarus. When Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth, he uses his name. Which means that Jesus was speaking to more than just a man's body whose ears had decomposed beyond the point of functioning. His body couldn't hear him, and yet Jesus is speaking to someone whose name is Lazarus. Jesus was talking to an individual who had a conscience. You see, though dead, Lazarus was very much alive and his identity intact. He responded. And what this tells us is that you, friend, are much more than the physical. You are much more than the material. The real you is not this flesh and bone. It's not your genetics or the DNA. It's not the chemicals. The real you, the soul, is immaterial and lasts forever. Jesus said, Lazarus, this way. And Lazarus was like, okay. I'm going to re-enter that thing. Again, before we work our way through the rest of the chapter, I want you to note two reasons that Jesus performed the miracle. Like why this is in the text. And it's important to do that because John is the only one to record this particular miracle. First, the reason it's in the text is that Jesus wanted his disciples to believe that he had the power 
to raise the dead. You see, in just a few weeks from this very moment, actually, Jesus will head to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. He'll be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, and he will be crucified. And undoubtedly, without a question, those events would rock his disciples' world. Jesus knew that his followers, they would be thrown into a crisis of faith. Peter would betray him. Judas deny him. The remaining ten would run for cover. You see, Jesus here is trying to prepare his disciples, these men, for what was coming. You know, while on three occasions Jesus will predict his coming death and resurrection on the third day, raising Lazarus after four days was designed to bolster their faith and his ability to do what he had promised. Jesus raised Lazarus in order to substantiate his claim of being the resurrection and the life. He cried to Lazarus, come forth with a loud voice. It was a command, one of authority. In doing so, Jesus is demonstrating that he was as in control of what took place beyond the grave as he was on the other side. The omnipotent summoned, and Lazarus obeyed and came forth. What a lesson. What a moment. The tomb could not stop resurrection, and life was victorious even over death. You know, up until this point, and, and this is not in regards to the, the Gospel of John, but just if you're chronicling Jesus' life and ministry, but by this point, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus has already raised two people from the dead. He's already raised, by this point, the widow's son of Nain, as well as Jairus' daughter. But these resurrections took place on the day of death. You see, allowing Lazarus to marinate for four days intended to demonstrate the ease in which Jesus would be able to resurrect in three. That being said, understand the resurrection of Jesus would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but as John is recalling this story, he notes something interesting to me. He notes that Jesus had to instruct those who were present to loose Lazarus, to let him go. Why? Because he came out bound, hand and foot with the grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Now, fast forward to John chapter 20. John tells us that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's actually John, our author. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. Therefore, Peter went out with the other disciple, that being John. They're going to the tomb. So they both ran together. I love this. And the other disciple outran Peter. That has nothing to do with the story. It's just John letting us know <laughs> he outran Peter. John got to the tomb first, and he, stooping down, looked in. Now notice this. And he saw linen clothes laying there. He didn't go in. So Simon came, following him, went into the tomb, saw the linen clothes lying there again, and the handkerchief, the shroud, that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in, in the place by itself. And the other disciple then come in, saw it, they believed. Now, notice that John observed that Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. 
which is amazing, but was unable to loose himself from his burial garments. But in contrast, Jesus rose from the dead and had zero issues at all with the burial cloths. And what that means is that there is a difference between the resurrection experienced by Lazarus and the one experienced by Jesus. That what Lazarus experienced only was a foreshadowing of a greater resurrection experienced by Jesus, mainly that Jesus was resurrected to glory. Lazarus, back to his flesh. Like the sad part of the story is Lazarus is going to have the unique opportunity to die again. Thank you, Jesus. You know, the second reason for this particular miracle is that it again illustrated a consistent theme that Jesus has been articulating about everlasting life. And, and I'm not going to belabor this particular point because we've, we've mentioned it numerous times, but it surfaces again. The resurrection of Lazarus demonstrates the fact that as the resurrection, Jesus provides a life that begins right now, today, this very moment, which then lasts for eternity. Everlasting life is not something you're given once you've died. It's something you've given today that lasts beyond the grave. And we see this illustrated in this passage. Now, following verse 44, John turns our attention away from Lazarus, and he turns our attention to the reaction of those present for the resurrection. And I am running out of time. And so, I'm going to go to my conclusion. We'll get to this text next week. Because my conclusion was going to come back to this point anyway. So I'm going to scroll down to the end of my notes. In closing, there's one more point I'd like to make about Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. This is not a complicated one. Think for a minute. How do we know that Lazarus heard the word of Jesus and experienced resurrection life? Like, don't overthink the question. Like, the, the answer is, it's not, this is not rocket science. Like, how do we know that Lazarus heard the word of Jesus and experienced a resurrection? Well, we can be confident that Lazarus experienced resurrection life because he came walking out of the tomb. Again, that's not complicated, but it's profound. You see, the reason we know that Lazarus had experienced a work of Jesus in his life, resurrection power in his life, is because there was evidence tangible evidence, visual evidence. No one could deny two things. No one could deny that Lazarus had been dead. Nor could anyone now deny that he was alive again. The proof was in the pudding. There was no grand debates. You see, a real change had occurred. 
It's how we know he was raised from the dead. The concluding thought is, can the same be said of you? Because you're making a similar claim as a follower of Jesus. That you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. Dead is a doorknob. As a matter of fact, you are so dead, you stinketh. To the point that, that no one thought you could change. No one thought it would be any different. And yet, through the darkness, you heard a voice. The voice of the master, the voice of the creator, the voice of Jesus. that said, come forth. And he knew your name. And you came hobbling out. We're not talking about a physical resurrection, but, but a spiritual one. That the dead part of you, this part mired and destroyed by sin, Jesus spoke and resurrected to life. And it will last forever. It is a life today you experience that will last for eternity. But here's the thing. Like with Lazarus, there is a tangible evidence when that happens. Yeah, you might not be running a marathon. You might be hobbling out. You might need some help. But you're alive. No one can doubt that. You know, I'm afraid that we live in a society of a lot of people that think they're alive, but they're still dead. One of my favorite movies is Weekend at Bernie's. It's a classic. I won't give you the entire storyline, other than the fact that two co-workers go to their boss's house in the Hamptons for Labor Day weekend. They get there and find that their boss is dead. But before they can let anyone know, the party starts. And they know that if they alert the authorities that Bernie's dead, the party's going to be over and their weekend ruined. So what do they do? They keep up the charade. They put a hat on, uh, on, on Bernie, put some glasses on, you know, and they literally lug him around. You know, pick up his arm to wave at people. All weekend, they keep up a charade that, that, that Bernie is, is alive, but he's, but he's dead as a doornail. I, I'm afraid there are a lot of Christians that, that more identify with Bernie Lomax than they do Lazarus. You think you're alive, but there's no evidence. And I'm not saying that to be, to be condemning. It's a challenge. Because there's a voice speaking through the void saying, come forth. You can look like you're alive. You can paint your face up, makeup. Open caskets are the worst, right? The goal is to make them look alive. They ain't alive. Grandpa's dead. And it's disturbing. Some of you, your version of Christianity is just as warped. And you still stinketh. But it doesn't have to be that way. And you might not believe it's possible. But this miracle, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And if you do, will you accept it? So, Father, Lord, we just let...